Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. We've got a great topic and a great guest today. We have with us Dr. Eric Bean. He has written a number of books, and his most recent book is Bias is All Around You. Highly recommend this book. It is a great read with a lot of take-home value. How are the modern communication methods affecting you? How are they meant to affect you? and what you can do to be a discerning consumer of news and information and opinion. Dr. Bean, welcome to The Common Bridge. So glad you're with us. Very good to be here, Rich. Appreciate it. Great. Just so uh, our audience uh, likes to know a little bit about our guests, and if you don't mind, where did you grow up? What's been your progression? And what are you up to today? Let's bring people up to speed on why you're the guy to write this very well done book. Well, thanks, Rich. You know, I, I graduated from Michigan State University in 1995 with a master's in journalism. And then primarily over the last uh, you know 20 to 25 years, I've spent a career in higher education, in research, uh, as well as secondary education. Uh, taught a lot of classes uh, in English and composition. Uh, philosophy, critical thinking, journalism. And, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I've learned quite a bit about attribution and how to uh, decipher uh, quality sources from poor quality sources. And uh, lately, uh, with what's been going on across the country, uh, the pandemic, the last presidential election, uh, it occurred to me that we all need some help. Um, we need some help because we're being bombarded with misinformation uh, on a daily basis. And uh, I noticed this uh, as early as last year when I had some friends in my social media network who were sharing posts without properly vetting the information. And so that's when the idea for the book first occurred. Indeed. I think this is very timely. And today we're recording as Facebook is being investigated further and more internal documents coming out about the way they've manipulated information and steered traffic to various sites and away from various sites. We know that occurs on most of the platforms, including, of course, the Facebook-owned Instagram, Twitter, and elsewhere. So I think this is a great book to make a more aware consumer. I should also point out that in a few short days after this recording, Michigan Wolverines, undefeated, undefeated Spartans of Michigan State, are going to meet in the backyard brawl in East Lansing. Care to make a prediction? This podcast and YouTube will publish after the game's played. What do you think? I think I understand uh, that uh, there's, what, been two times in the last uh, dozen years where they've both come into this undefeated. And I think Michigan State has prevailed. Uh, and, uh, well, you know, being a Spartan, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go green all the way, all the way. I, I would expect that, and I hope for a good game in the backyard brawl. It's a shame one of the teams has to lose, but 
my prediction is that if Michigan State wins, next year both teams will have a new coach as State's coach will be off to LSU or someplace and Jim Harbaugh will be doing something, but he won't be coaching the Wolverines if he can't beat the Spartans this year. Anyway, um, I, I think it's a win for the economy for both uh, cities and for Michigan. So that's good for everybody. Indeed it is. So early on in your book, you talk about transparency as a social value. And that is something I thought was uh, fascinating, given that we were all raised in an era of commercialization. You know, we we're all told, hey, don't believe that. That's just a commercial trying to sell you something. You talk about the seven risks of bias, the seven sources of bias, and then you have a great structure about how to process that. So maybe start us there. Transparency as a social value. What's that about? Well, you know what? Uh, I was joined uh, with uh, Tim Voss, the current director of Michigan State University School of Journalism program, wrote the forward, and he, he discussed that uh, pretty openly. Uh, you know, everybody talks about transparency, but the truth is that we really don't deliver the best job when it comes to transparency. And I like the anecdote that he used. He basically said that, you know, if I hand you a thousand page uh, document on what took place in Congress today, he's saying that I've been transparent to you. But who has the time to go through a thousand pages and, uh, and, and vet that material so that the information in it, you know, is non-bias. And uh, so that's what, what it comes down to transparency. When it comes to the seven sources of bias, this is the thing that really struck me as I was teaching for many years and, and working with my students. You know, it occurred to me that really there are only seven sources of all information. So no matter what information comes your way, if it's flat in a newspaper, if it's in a magazine, if the information is in a video, a podcast, uh, a TV show, information can be boiled down to seven sources. And those seven sources, and there's not any particular order, are academic, hidden agenda, for-profit, non-profit, government, watchdog groups, and individuals like you and me, individuals like you and me. So immediately when we get a piece of information, we have to look at the overall bias of the structure of the source that it's coming from, because then we can immediately discern how that information was designed in the first place, what its purpose was. And it doesn't mean that it's bias. To the point where it's not usable, it just means that we need to stop, take a deep breath, use critical thinking, and begin to vet out how usefulness, how useful that piece of information is. It's kind of a better structured way of saying, consider the source. You know, where did this come from? And, and I love the example about reading you know, thousands of pages of congressional testimony and then who filtered it and why did they filter it and so forth. You talk about the seven risks of bias as well. Are those part and parcel the same sources of risk? Well, no. So the seven risks really, if you, it comes down to it, is that if we are, uh, you know, the term haste makes waste, right? 
Uh, if mm -hmm. we immediately share something without properly vetting it, okay, um, it could lead us to following a false cause. It could lead us to feeling simply foolish. It can tarnish our credibility. It can attract the wrong people. It can create undue stress, right? And it can also compromise your values, right? Uh, and finally, uh, it can harm our mental health. It can harm our mental health. And it, it seems like something so innocent. You know, Rich, in 2018, I was fortunate enough to have a paper accepted to a conference at Oxford University. And it was a conference on uh, the internet uh, policy and, and the public and democracy. And the people who study the internet at Oxford University, they've done research and they've discovered that people will innocently share a post, for example, to help get their candidate elected, uh, even if they haven't properly vetted it, and they think nothing of it. They'll just go back, have a, have a cup of coffee, take a bite out of their sandwich, and, uh, and do it. And, you know, not everybody, but they've discovered that some people do this. And so in my book, on the very last page, I liken that to imagine walking into a theater and screaming fire when there's no fire. What would happen to you if you did that? So, you know, right now, we as individuals, we all have to take better accountability. Uh, and we all have to properly vet information before we share it because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, and that's what prompted me to write this book. So some of the things that you talk about is, you know, taking time to assess and asking who created the information and uh, something called a preparatory journal. If I understood it, it's these hot takes that we hear where a story starts and it goes ripping around the internet. It's around the world. And, you know, several days or a week later, we find out it's just not true, but it's gone from consciousness at that point. But in the meantime, gotten a lot of people alarmed. Is that kind of what, what you were getting at there? And, and what are some of the personal techniques people might do to combat that? Yeah. So Rich, this goes back to you know, that that childhood game that we all played when we were kids. I don't care what generation you're from, War Baby, Baby Boomer, Gen X, Gen Y. Everybody remembers that game where we sat around as kids and we whispered a message into somebody's ear. And by the time that message came full circle, uh, it was probably not the original message that it was intended for, right? So, so, uh, yeah, so what it is, is I created a bias assessment form. It's a one page form and this bias assessment form, and it, it took a lot of consideration, uh, and it took a lot of critical thinking for me to come up with the right form. Um, but the process begins with identifying one of those seven sources. But the next step in the process is something that I call CLEMP that you might remember, Clemp, K-L-E-M-P. Yeah. And what I did is I simply took the uh, ancient Greek rhetorical styles and, and I put them in an easy-to-remember acronym, Clemp. Uh, so K is for Kiros, L is for Logos, E is for Ethos, M is for Mythos, and P is for Pathos. And, and what that means, just to run down it real quick, is Kiros 
And the, you know, the Greeks knew this, you know, hundreds of years ago. Kairos is how timely is a piece? How, how new is that piece uh, since it's been published? You know, has it been published in the last day, the last week, the last month? The older it gets doesn't mean that it's bad information, but it means that it's not as fresh. It could indeed be more accurate. It, it could be. It could be more accurate if, if it's correcting something that went out into the echo chamber, uh, yep. which we've seen over and over again. There's dozens of examples, but most recently the whole ivermectin thing was around the world with the Associated Press, Rolling Stone, NPR, etc., Yep. And it turned out the whole thing was just, I, oh, it's my show. I can say this then. It's bu- it was all bullshit. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that, I mean, there, there's probably, you can probably think of hundreds of examples, but that's, that's one of them. Absolutely. And so on our form, when we penalize how old an article is, it only receives just a minor, minor, uh, maybe one point off rather than five points off uh, weighted for the other uh, things that we do when we assess for bias. So you're correct. Uh, old information can be good information, especially if there's been nothing new to, uh, you know, unvalidate it, right? So, but Kiros is something that we all need to be aware of. L is for logos, which really is reason and logic that's built into the piece. But I like to simply say facts or statistics. If you're reading a piece that contains no attribution, no citation, no facts or statistics, it's an editorial. Now, it doesn't mean that editorials aren't good to read. We all should read editorials to get different, uh, you know, opinions from different people. But we have to take it with a grain of salt because they're not giving us any facts or any attribution or citations or maybe very little. I thought this was a powerful part of your book, by the way. And I, I think that we should dive into this because I remember in reading your book about the logos part. I did a episode, three or four episodes back about critical race theory with Professor Ruparalia. And there was a widely repeated story around the internet. I could never get back to original source that someone should have been able to say it was this place at this time in this school district that such an event had occurred. And also in my reading, as in everybody's reading, statistics, sometimes you'll see a percentage increase, sometimes you'll see or decrease, and sometimes you'll see actual numbers. And my radar for bias goes up. If you're giving me numbers, you've got to give me context. So, you know, a 300% increase, you know, did we go from one to three? or from a million to three million of whatever it is we happen to be counting. So is this kind of the Logos view is to talk about facts and statistics and facts as a journalist, are we still dealing with the, you know, who, what, when, where, and why, or has it evolved since that time? Well, that's it. I mean, right. Facts can be manipulated. Statistics can be manipulated. Uh, That's why we included a little note about, you know, Mark Twain in our book too. You know, um, because he his famous saying is figures don't lie, but liars figure. Right. So so, you know, it all does go back to if you can find the information as it was originally published from the horse's mouth, that's better than necessarily finding it in in other types of sources. Um, But we need to have some trust in some of the sources that we, you know, have found to be reliable over the years as well. So but no, that's a very good point about Logos. Um, you know, because uh, we can't believe all the statistics. That's what we say in the book. You know, one uh, week there's a research study that um, oatmeal is good for you, right? It's high in fiber. 
the, the next week they might say, well, but if you eat too much oatmeal, you know, you might gain too much weight because of carbohydrates. So, you know, we have to put all information into perspective and we, you know, we have to really sift through it with a fine tooth comb. And until such, such a time when there's a service that can actually rate the biases of every piece of information that we have, um, we need to take the time to go out there and do it right now. So that, that's for the logos component. That's right. Um, when we move further on into CLEMP, right, we get into ethos and methos. And, um, it, you know, I, I want to be able to share at least about ethos first, because ethos is the qualifications of the writer, the background of the writer. And in most cases, ethos helps the writer make a better piece, especially in the creative fields we talk about in the book. You know, if you look at um, Steven Spielberg, his background is Jewish. So, you know, he wrote uh, Schindler's List or produced the movie. So, you know, he, he does a very good job of including his ethos because he's experienced some of the situations that went on in the book through his family. So there's nothing wrong with ethos. The background of the writer is very important. But we need to do some reconnaissance. We need to go out over the Internet and put in the name of the author and see what comes back. Right. Um, that's all part of it. And then we move into mythos. This is more time consuming. Mythos is different from ethos. Mythos is the subject matter expertise of that writer. And, uh, you know, again, in most cases, it enhances a piece. But. If somebody's publishing hate literature, if somebody aligns themselves with um, organizations that have hidden agendas, their mythos uh, doesn't really contribute that much to humanity, as we say in the book. So, um, you know, that's something that we we need to have people uh, research into when they're when they when they like a writer. They need to take the time to research the background of the writer. Now, obviously. These two pieces of Klemp can be very time-consuming. If you do just Keros and Logos alone, the only other piece you need without doing any more research that you can see directly in the published piece is pathos. How much emotion does the piece contain? Now, mm -hmm. we're not trying to turn everybody into robots. Pieces should have a little emotion tied to them. Um, people should... Uh, they need to have emotion because pieces need to bond to the reader. Um, but when they have so much emotion and with no logos and they might be outdated, we could say that perhaps be careful because that piece could be highly biased. Eric, something that I'm curious about as it pertains to pathos, we have had uh, some experts on the Common Bridge, Matt Taibbi, among others, that talk about news reporting of the day, it's designed to stimulate emotion and to create outrage. And it's like they can't get attention unless they're overplaying that hand. Is that part of pathos that should we be asking ourselves, well, wait a minute, what kind of reaction are you trying to get out of me and why? I think if I understood back to the earlier parts of Clemp. Yeah. So, so that's right. So, you know, I, when I think of pathos, you know, I think of people like Howard Stern, right? The original shock jock, right? You know, yes. uh, he, you know, his whole uh, 
concept was to elicit as many emotions as he could. And he did that by, by swearing, by using provocative language, colorful language, anything to keep the viewer engaged. Right. And, uh, and, and, uh, so it's, uh, you know, and there are other people, uh, that, that do that too. So, uh, and, but even when we go to a Sunday morning sermon at church or we go to a synagogue, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of pathos that it, that's built mm-hmm. into that ser- yeah. sermon. Uh, and, and, you know, so, but the, the pathos needs to be used in the right way, right? It, it needs to be used. I, I always like to go back for the purposes of humanity, right? Uh, when people start uh, using pathos and, uh, and they're spewing out hate speech, they're spewing out, uh, you know, messages that haven't been well-researched, then, you know, there needs to be a big red flag when it comes to pathos, you know. And again, we're talking more for news pieces than we are talking for pure entertainment. Um, but, you know, there's a fine line to how people get their news today and their social networks. You know, we, um, getting our news years ago, uh, it took a lot more work. We had to get in our car. We had to go to a store. We had to find a newspaper, right? Or unless one was delivered to our front door, right? You know, uh, today, most people don't do that. Um, they simply, uh, you know, use what's most convenient to them. And what's most convenient to them is what comes across on this smartphone device. And I think they figured out a lot of what you figured out, but for not such a good purpose that I could tweet this out and get people riled up. I've been tracking voter laws and I've actually read the voter laws and they're being grossly misrepresented. That's a topic probably for another day. We did have Professor Derek Muller on to talk about what election law is about. But one of the purveyors, an alarmist with a sordid past, let's say, actually said, I'm out here doing this highly justified work. And if you don't like what I'm doing, don't follow me. I mean, my answer should be, if you really believe it, you should want everybody to hear and you should want to be challenged. But it's getting emotion on something that's very important and leading people down the wrong path. I've got other, lots of other questions, but I, don't sure. want, to, I want to make sure that we explain to people about the biases. And also, I'd like to make mention that part of your book, there are worksheets that you can obtain to help your own critical thinking skills, which I, I thought was brilliant the way that you codified that. I will also mention that the book is available on Audible. It's available on Amazon and many other places as well. But when you talk about things like hidden agendas, the for-profits, the not-for-profits, the watchdogs and the government, these are the sources. What is it that we need to be aware of? And and part of that, and I don't know if this is a, a summary or not, but you said that Jesse Ventura, a former governor of the state of Minnesota, said, there's 63 documents that the government doesn't want you to read. I'd like to know what those 63 are and how long are they? Would it, how long would it take to read? Well, that's it. That's it. Well, so, but, but here, here's, here's what it comes down to in a nutshell. Um, you know, and, and I can start off with uh, the academic source, right? The, the, you know, okay. in the academy, the number one goal of the academy in higher education, uh, you know, is, is research. Uh in addition to educating 
you know, the, the, the students that attend the schools, um, but they are there to uh, contribute to the body of knowledge, right? Yeah, and how that right. occurs is through a peer-reviewed process, right? Um, but, you know, higher ed needs to be careful. Um, there's different quality of peer-reviewed journals. There's, um, you know, and even in that area too, uh, some very well-known companies are having researchers pay to have their work reviewed now. It's not just free peer-reviewed anymore and uh, because of just the sheer volume of information that's come out. So, uh, but there's pressure. There's pressure on professors. You know, the, the famous saying, publish or perish, right? And uh, so it, it doesn't mean that uh, the research that's out there, you know, we shouldn't read. We should read. But we need to read it very carefully or we need to make sure we go to other sources that filter it with a non-biased approach and just understand that, you know, like any source of information, uh, academics are motivated, uh, you know, to uh, get tenure. Uh, and again, it's not a bad thing, uh, it, it's, but it's just something that we need to be aware of because the research that's generated uh, you know, those studies, uh, they could cost thousands of dollars. They could cost millions of dollars. Sometimes that's the only information that we have to move forward. If you think about what's going on with the COVID uh, vaccines right now, the studies that are going on, uh, you know, it's one thing for a vaccine manufacturer to do its own research, but it's less bias if an independent research mm -hmm. company did the research on the vaccine as well. Right. So, um, but so that's the academic category in a nutshell, the other, probably the, the, the source that spews out more information than any other source is for profit because we live in a for profit system and for profits have the money. They can advertise to us. They can, they can, they can buy their way into uh, newspapers with uh, advertorials. That's when you, 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 you buy an ad and you also get a write-up for your product. And that's been practiced in the industry for many years, right? An advertorial, right? But um, so for profits, they're out to make money, you know? And so we use Ford just as an example. Uh, I've owned Fords. I love Fords. Um, but um, Ford's out to make a profit. So, you know, companies aren't going to negatively say anything bad about their products, but there is something that's been around for years in the advertising industry called truth in advertising. Uh, there needs to be some standards, right, uh, to truth in advertising. So for-profits pump out a lot of information. The iconic documentary, Super Size Me, where... Uh, he had so many good statistics in there comparing the advertising budget of one company, McDonald's Corporation, against the entire budget for the United States Department of Agriculture to put out messages about what healthy food was. That it's really, on a monetary basis, a situation of being outgunned buy for profits. We can think back to other times when cigarettes were promoted as being healthful. We had the period with Sierra Coop was the Surgeon General who finally ripped the mask off the tobacco companies who knew they had to get kids addicted in their teens 
because adults rarely took up smoking. So that for-profit motivation is clearly out there. And I know people are watching with interest around the vaccines because we desperately need answers about that. And that's a sea of misinformation, disinformation, alongside some you know really strong research that is being done privately. Great Barrington Declaration being one of those private, of course, our own CDC organization, as well as we've had Dr. James Baker from University of Michigan on the program three times now talking about his research, and he is a primary researcher for the vaccines. But it's very difficult to get good, clear information, particularly as the subject matter develops. Because there's so much information being pumped out on a daily basis. Um, but when we talk about, you know, healthcare information, it's just a good point right now to mention that the United States Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Murthy, uh, you know, he's got a call out there right now on the internet. You can download his uh, PDF document that he's got a call right now that we all need to do what we can to combat health misinformation that's plaguing many communities right now. So, uh, but I just wanted to mention that right now. Brian, let's get a link to that and put it up on the website, richardhelpy.com. I think that's an important read. Yeah. So we will get that on the air and help publicize that. Now, you, you also mentioned not-for-profits uh, yeah. being an issue. How can that be? Well, so, you know, again, it's it's not that uh, that we're saying that nonprofits aren't, you know, are, you know, are biased or not biased. We're simply saying that this is another source that we need to be aware of. Uh, nonprofits, churches, uh, you know, the United Way, things like that. All we're saying is that, um, you know, check, check the validity, validity of their information. Are they using proper citations and attribution when they're making a plea for assistance? Uh, you know, it, you know, does the money go towards a proper cause? Things like that. Um, you know, uh, hopefully it does. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, but all we're saying is, is that, you know, the old fashioned saying, uh, don't believe everything you read. They're just another source that we need to be aware of because over the years, like for profits, like the academic community, um, their messages uh, have been skewed. And their messages uh, might not have been published with the best citations and the best information possible. And that's why we need to be aware of nonprofits. And then I also included watchdog groups, which are also mm -hmm. typically normally a nonprofit. But I wanted to separate them just because they have a unique role where their job is to watch everybody else, to watch the for-profits, to make sure they're advertising correctly to watch other nonprofits, to make sure that they're not harming animals, to, uh, you know, to, to do their thing. So, you know, watchdog groups are another source. Uh, and over the years, there's been good ones, and there's been some that haven't been so good. So again, just another source of the seven. And then we also get into hidden agenda group. Uh, and those are the ones, you know, uh, you know, like QAnon, um, you know, they, they're not about transparency. Uh, they're not about good customer service. Uh, you know, they don't usually have a 1-800 line that you can go and get <laughs> answers to, uh, right. You know, uh, but, but 
but they're out there. And but if you can't discern the information that you're getting, if if you can't see a source, a copyright date, you know, if there are if there are people that you can talk to readily, that's a, a red flag that that they might be a hidden agenda group, especially if they're spewing, you know, hate messaging things like that. If they're trying to motivate you emotionally to try to get you to go one direction or another, that's the uh, scary part. It's like, okay, who are you? Why do you want me to believe this? Why do you want me to react like this? And why aren't you out in the light of day? Those kind of groups have been around a long time. They are now supercharged on the modern communication technology that we have today and the easier to find affinity groups. Yeah. And also because of the, the power of the tools, they're prone to exaggeration. Uh, now, I've, I will confess I've not like gone on their website or looked into them. I've had advocates uh, appeal to me and I've asked them, you know, just like the remember the book Anonymous that came out in the prior administration, you had to look at that and go, okay, is it how real is this? Well, it turned out to be garbage, right? 28-year-old kid wrote it, but it was portrayed as a senior advisor. So you have to look at that and kind of say, all right, if you really had this point of view, why wouldn't you be front and center saying it? Similarly, with some of these conspiracy groups, you should be front and center saying it. And there's plenty of news outlets if you want to be, you know, you can come on this program or you can go on any of the uh, many news outlets, do your own YouTube channel this afternoon if you want to. That's my cut on it. I don't know if that squares up with your research or not. And I'd love to be corrected and, and improve my ability to sort things out. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's it, Rich. I mean, you know, these groups are taking advantage. They, they, they know the power of social media. Uh, they, you know, uh, you know, the power of Twitter, uh, you know, when you can send out a communication and, and by the way, research, you know, on the use of Twitter, um, you know, there, uh, this was done over 10 years ago. I remember, um, first reading about, uh, in, in, I, I think it was Mubarak in, uh, was it Mubarak in Egypt? Uh, the, the, the takeover of him, um, you know, because you can ask people to do things a lot faster in social media than you can if you're just sending an email out to somebody because you're not guaranteed whether or not they're going to read it. But it, but when you can post it, you know, in something like Twitter, you can magnify your message greatly uh, and, and produce a lot more followers. And people are vulnerable these days. You know, um, you might be, uh, you know, led down a primrose path uh, because it seems like they're giving you good information. They're giving you what you want to hear. And that's why we. I also wanted to make sure that everybody knew that right at the beginning of the book, we're asking everybody that you know to understand that we all have our own personal biases. And we need to check our biases uh, before we even start analyzing a piece of information. Does my personal biases get in the way of me understanding that that information is or is not authentic is or is not transparent is or is not you know objective and wasn't that the seventh seventh source of bias with individuals people sending and uh, the message coming back that's right yeah that there, there's individuals which comprise because you know uh, years ago when you and I wanted to make a ding in a national conversation, we had to sit down with a piece of paper and a pen. We had to sit down in front of a typewriter. We had to take that message 
put it in an envelope and send it to a TV station, send it to a newspaper, hope, hope that they would publish our editorial to contribute to a national conversation, right? So obviously today, as individuals, any one of us can hit post in a social media. We can design our own websites. We, our information is out there and we can contribute to the body of knowledge. Uh, you know, but are we really contributing effectively in a national conversation if we haven't vetted information or done our own research? And that's what it's all about. So yes, it, we're all individuals. We're all part of those seven sources. You could be an individual working for a for-profit. You can be an individual working for a nonprofit. You could be an individual working for a hidden agenda group. Hopefully you're not. Um, but the bottom line is, is that um, all these demarcation lines uh, need to be thought of. Um, and, uh, and, and those represent, you know, uh, conclusively the, the seven sources of overall information that comes our way every single day. And what we do with that information uh, says a lot about our character, says a lot about our decision-making capabilities. And that's why we devoted a whole chapter in the book. It's a very short chapter, um, you know, because we wanted to get to the point, hasty generalizations, you know, and, yeah. and that's probably one of the biggest fallacies. The other thing we have to do with the information is the, you know, the chapter six was to vet for fallacies as well. Yes, uh, I love the way that you put the book together. Again, the book is Biases All Around You by uh, Dr. Eric Bean. And a couple other things as we get near the end of our talk today. Uh, the 10 fallacies, and you talked about cognitive dissonance. I, as I'm sure everybody does, see that every place, is that you can have somebody, you know, mouthing the talking points and you say, well, look, does this fact, does this fact, does this fact square with that? And the pushbacks that I've gotten, either either emotional reaction or, well, where did that come from? And a great example would be somebody, very learned person and a very left-wing type person. And I, I said, well, you have to, did you look, did you see the testimony? And they go, where'd you get that, Fox News? I said, no, I watched C-SPAN Senate Intelligence Committee hearing during the day. You can read it in the transcript. This is what was said. The fact that was irrefutable firsthand information didn't comport with that false generalization. And I actually could almost visualize the cognitive dissonance kicking off, trying to find a way to reject that hard fact. That's kind of the takeaway I got from those chapters in the book, but I, I'm not sure I was reading it right. And I, I defer to your superior subject matter knowledge on this. Great question. Well, first of all, Let's discuss what cognitive dissonance is, all right? Okay, Festinger, yeah, great. yeah, Festinger in 1957 uh, was among the first, uh, you know, people to coin the term cognitive dissonance. And uh, we talk about that, uh, I believe it's on page 31 in the book, all right? Uh, and uh, what, what this is, it's an uncomfortable psychological state that exists when there are inconsistencies between one's behaviors and one's cognitions. And, uh, you know, furthermore, um, you know, it, it, it kind of uh, really tugs and pulls at the, uh, the very values that we believe in. So in other words, if you eat a bad meal and you know you did, because we all 
we all want to have a, a, you know, a, a, a meal that tastes great and it may not be that healthy for us all the time. So the cognitive dissonance is what you experience. You know, it may, it may raise your stress level. It, you know, you may punish yourself because you knew you shouldn't have done that. And so you'll be good to yourself and you'll eat a healthy meal. But so cognitive dissonance is our, the, the feeling that we feel inside our head when we may do something wrong. So what I was trying to allude to is if we share a piece of information that we haven't properly vetted, that could lead to cognitive dissonance. That it should lead to, if we have a conscience, it should lead, lead to cognitive dissonance because we know that we shouldn't have hit send in our social, uh, we shouldn't have posted that because we didn't have enough information to validate that. And don't the algorithms of the online platforms kind of play into that? They have kind of codified what our belief systems might be, and they're, they're sending us stuff to reinforce that point of view. That's right. That, and that's another aspect that the book discusses is that, you know, corporate America pays for these algorithms. You know, he who has the most uh, gold rules, right? You know, yeah. and so so they pay for these and, you know, uh, corporations like Facebook, people, they're not telling us necessarily the algorithms. You know, that's why Facebook found themselves in hot water recently, because one of the whistleblowers, you know, and I can't conclude this. I'm just relaying the information that I heard from the whistleblower is that the algorithm was created to accentuate more negative conversation in the network than it was to accentuate more positive health. Adding, adding to our growing mental health crisis. And exactly. uh, I know that you had some direct and very painful experience with that. And hence your motives in writing this book and where you're going to raise money for the Ethan Bean mental health, mental awareness. That's right. I thought you tied that in beautifully with your academic work, your really pure research and very painful personal experience. So as we were deciding if we wanted to publish the book, you know, the book is published through my nonprofit entity, the Ethan Bean Mental Wellness Foundation, that I started in 2019 after losing my 17-year-old son to a mental illness. Um, but the, the, we wanted it to go to a, a, a nonprofit because we want to help people, right? Um, and so it, it made sense to do it through our organization and to be transparent about it in, a, in, in the book as well. Um, but you know, information can hurt people, whether they have a mental illness or whether they don't have a mental illness. Uh, you can be the most highly educated person in the world. Information can outsmart any one of us. And, and that's another reason why we decided to write the book. I say we because I want to thank my outstanding editor, Sherry Wexler, for doing a great job. The amazing paper cut illustrations that Gail Gorski took the time to include for this effort just a, an unbelievably creative effort. Um, and so um, when you look uh, at the fallacies in the last uh, chapter, and we all need to vet information for fallacies, I know we're running out of time. Um, and then just understanding that, um, you know, our mental health uh, is very important. A book that I published uh, because of the, the loss of my son was called Ethan's Healthy Mind Express in the fall of 2019. And uh, that book even has a couple of pages to warn children not to believe everything you read on the internet. And 
to be careful of what's called the dark web that could affect even younger mm -hmm. children as well. So that's where there was a, a similar component to understanding that information uh, can, you know, has to be used wisely. And I do think information affects the mental health. Uh, you know, uh, people who have autism are even more affected by misinformation than people like you or I. Well, there is so much more in the book uh, that we can't cover today, but you have some very practical advice about how to vet sources of journalism, how to understand fallacies, great statistics, 6%, six corporations control 90% of the news, and also some worksheets. Eric, where can people get the book today, either in audio form or print version or any other ways? Yeah, the 72-minute audiobook is available even through the Apple uh, store as well as audiobooks.com and through Amazon. It's a 72-minute uh, journey. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that right now that's uh, being sold at a very reasonable price. We also have a Kindle version of the book. You can download immediately through Amazon. We have a Nook version of the book. If you're a Barnes & Noble person, we have a paperback of the book uh, right now through Amazon. And we also have a beautiful hardcover book, more archival quality, being sold through Barnes & Noble right now. So, you know, feel free to go check it out. And, uh, you know, um, it's available uh, widely right now. Any closing thought for our audience today? This has been fascinating. I am so grateful that you've taken your time to explain to our audience what your book is about. Well, I appreciate that. You know, in the book, Rich, you know, we talk about, um, you know, we talk about Pulitzer. Uh, Joseph Pulitzer uh, was a New York congressman, and we've all heard of the Pulitzer uh, Prize in journalism. But he said more than 100 years ago that our republic and its press will rise and fall together. And I truly believe that that call has never been more important than right now. I concur. We've been talking today with Dr. Eric Bean, author of the book, Bias is All Around You. It is a great read. Highly recommended. And perhaps Dr. Bean will return to speak with us again about this book and others that I know he's thinking about. This is Rich Helpy, your host, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helby.